Now, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. And our text this evening will be verses 1 through 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. <clears throat> but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. <clears throat> and that's the reading of God's word. Let's ask him once more to bless it to us. Father in heaven, we pray for the ministry of your spirit to open our eyes, to behold wondrous things out of your word. We pray that you will instruct our hearts and we pray that your word would, would have powerful effect upon us. May it go forth, not in word only, but also in power, to the glory of our Savior. We pray it in his name. Amen. Now, I'm going to make a guess about something, particularly about you young people. I think, uh, I bet there are some young people here tonight who don't like vegetables. Would that be correct? I only say that because uh, I remember I didn't like vegetables very much when I was a kid. But this text that we're looking at tonight got me thinking about um, how we classify things, the, the whole science of taxonomy. We categorize all sorts of things into different um, groups, classes, orders, species. Um, and I wonder if it would surprise you children, or maybe even some of you adults, to know that uh, watermelons are actually a member of the vegetable family. Did you know that? So you can eat watermelon and get your veggies too. Isn't that great? The, the flip side of that is tomatoes are not a vegetable. They're actually a fruit. And there are lots of little did-you-know kind of things in this vast uh, a field of taxonomy. For instance, orcas. You know what orcas are, right? They're those things we sometimes call killer whales. Well, guess what? 
orcas, killer whales, aren't members of the whale family. They're members of the dolphin family. And you might think, okay, I get it. Yeah, they got the blowhole, they, they're mammals, they, they give birth to live young, great. I understand. I can see the similarity between orcas and dolphins. That's fine. Well, what about this? Think about a chihuahua, the smallest domestic dog there is. And then think about the old English sheepdog. Think about the differences in their coats and think about the differences in their size. Did you know that they are the exact same species? Lots of fun and surprising and sometimes hard to believe facts in taxonomy. Uh, but on a more serious note, there is a taxonomy to sin. We can categorize and classify sins. We can say of all sin, borrowing from the definition that we have in our catechism, that sin of any kind, the definition of sin, is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So any kind of sin that a person commits is that. It's a transgression of God's law or it's a failure to conform to God's law. And we also know that no matter what kind of sin it is, no matter whether it's a big sin or a small sin, all sin deserves God's wrath and curse both in this life and in the life to come. But the thing about sin is just like vegetables, it takes many forms. There are many species of sin, we might say, many classes of sin. And now you might be thinking, fine, but what does that have to do with Ecclesiastes 4, 1 through 8? Well, Solomon begins chapter 4 with some observations about oppression. He looks out, he's, he's engaged in this study of all that goes on, on under the sun, and he sees oppression. And he comments on it in verses 1 through 3. But then as he goes on in verses 4 through 8, he hasn't entirely departed from the topic of oppression. Because verses 4 through 8 describe versions of oppression that are self-imposed. In other words, oppression comes in many forms. There are various species of oppression, we might say. Some forms of oppression are the kinds that are laid on the backs of the oppressed by the wicked. But then there are other forms of oppression that people, <clears throat> whether knowingly or not, bind onto themselves. And that's what Solomon is comp contemplating here. And I want us to see from this text, or the lesson that, we're, that we desperately need to take away from this text, is that Christ is the true remedy for every form of oppression. That's where I want to take us tonight. We'll look at tyranny as a form of oppression, but then we're going to look at envy and also greed as forms of oppression. And Christ is the remedy for it all and every other form, every other species that there is. Let's first consider tyranny <clears throat> because our classic conception of oppression is um, those with power 
treating others unjustly. And this may have hit home uh, with Solomon to some extent. It could be that as Solomon grew older and he watched his sons grow up, he may have seen in Rehoboam, the heir to his throne, some tendencies towards oppressive behavior. And think about what Rehoboam did when he took the throne. You've probably heard the story. He's crowned king, and the people come to him and say, your father made our yoke heavy, lighten our load. Rehoboam tells them, come back in three days. And he seeks the counsel. Rehoboam seeks the counsel of the elders and the counselors that had stood before his father. These men who had heard Solomon's wisdom all their lives throughout his reign. And he says, what do you think I should answer these people? And they say, do what they say. Lighten their load and they'll serve you forever. And Rehoboam says, hmm. And then he consults his friends, his peers, the people who grew up with him and stood before him. He said, what do you think we should do? And they said, oh, sock it to them, man. You're the king. You tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And that's the option Rehoboam took. And it split the kingdom. He had a tendency to want to oppress. He wanted to rule with an iron fist. He wanted the people under his thumb. And it backfired on him. And it destroyed the kingdom. So, you know, Solomon may have perceived some of those tendencies in his son long before he ever took the throne. But we know from this text that Solomon had tremendous sympathy towards the oppressed. He takes note of their tears, it says. Behold the tears of the oppressed. And he also perceives and comments upon the imbalance in their situation. This asymmetrical arrangement, the advantage that the oppressor has over the oppressed. The oppressor has power. And you notice two times he laments the fact that those who are under all this oppression have no one to comfort them. He says it twice. It seems to really impress him. It seems to really lay heavily upon his heart that these people, not only are they oppressed, but there's no comfort available to them. And Solomon laments that. Now, when people read through Ecclesiastes, and when scholars study Ecclesiastes, assuming they accept the notion that Solomon is the author, they will take Solomon to task, and they will also speculate about what specific situations Solomon may have been looking at or may have seen when he says different things throughout the pages of Ecclesiastes, when he makes different observations and says, again, I saw, fill in the blank, and they wonder, do we know what he was thinking of when he wrote this, when he commented upon it? Was he personally involved in the matters that he saw taking place under the sun? What were the experiences he was referring to? And why didn't he intervene? As if to say, Solomon, you're the king, and if you witnessed oppression taking place in your realm, why didn't you do something about it? 
And so we can be critical of Solomon if we want to be, I suppose. But I'd like to make this observation. Solomon's field of study was pretty extensive. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 4, in verse 34 it says, And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon didn't live in a cocoon, in other words. People were coming to him from all over the world because they'd heard the stories of his great wisdom and they wanted to hear his wisdom firsthand. So they came and they listened to him. And he thereby would have had an awareness of the socio-political landscape. And you can imagine a ruler from a foreign country wouldn't just come by himself. He'd come with an entourage with his own servants, and Solomon could observe how this king from another place treated his servants and how his higher servants treated the lower servants. Solomon would have seen it. He would have taken note. But not only that, even in Israel's golden age, even when Israel was at its very best, even during Solomon's reign when there was peace and the, the... the borders of Israel had expanded to their fullest extent that they ever had and ever would. And there's wealth. It still wasn't the perfect society. And so you're never going to eradicate oppression entirely. But remember Solomon's project. If you look back at chapter 1, what Solomon said he was setting about to do in verse 13 was... I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. So Solomon's not just focused on what was right in front of his face. He was looking at the world. He was studying it all. And the conclusion that he reached is oppression is universal. And that's a conclusion we would have to agree with. And it starts early. Oppression starts early. Oppression starts on the playground. When the stronger kid bullies the weaker kid. And it just goes up from there. Throughout all the different sectors and strata of human life and society. From the playground to the palace. Oppression is universal. And in view of this. Solomon articulates a normal human conclusion that he perceives that people might reach. We see that in verses 2 and 3. I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. You could take a carnal approach to this, Solomon is saying, and when you see what goes on in the world, you you could conclude that it's better off just to be done with it all. Verse 3, but better than both is he who has not yet been, has never even had to be exposed to what goes on in this fallen world. He's not advocating suicide. He's not saying that life isn't worth living. But he does speak of the advantage of those who no longer witness or experience the evil done under the sun. And then following that same line of reasoning, He says it's even better 
not ever to have seen evil at all. But these are his observations about tyranny. And there is no human solution to tyranny. There is no human solution to oppression. The universal evil of oppression and tyranny requires a divine solution. It requires and calls for and needs a gospel solution. And that solution can only be found in Christ. Because in Christ, there is grace for this life and there's hope for the life to come. Because in this present age, what what Christ does is he gives us his Holy Spirit. And what's one of the things that Scripture itself calls the Holy Spirit? It calls the Holy Spirit the Comforter. So that Christ's people are never without someone to comfort them. He gives us each other. He gives us community within the body of Christ, within the church. And so we can comfort one another. But even if a person is without any other external comforts, the Holy Spirit is indwelling him or is indwelling her and can never be taken away from him or her. And so Christ's people always have someone to comfort them. Like Solomon, Jesus sees the tears of the oppressed. He sees them. And what does he say when he sees the tears of the oppressed? He says, I will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Matthew Henry wrote, a good man, meaning by that he doesn't mean, you you know what he means. He's talking about a believer, a person who is righteous in Christ, a, a person who's living the life of faith and seeking to honor God. A good man, how calamitous a condition soever he is in in this world, cannot have cause to wish he had never been born since he is glorifying the Lord even in the fires and will be happy at last, forever happy. So that's the gospel answer to tyranny and to oppression. But as we go on to verse 4 and following, we come upon the topic of envy. You know, back in the Christmas season, perhaps a few of you uh, either attended a performance of Messiah by Handel, or maybe uh, you listened to some uh, some of it or a recording of it. Uh, Messiah, of course, is Handel's, but by far his best known oratorio. But he wrote many others, and he wrote one entitled Saul. And it's an oratorio, a dramatic oratorio, about the life of the first king of Israel, Saul, son of Kish, the the predecessor to David. And there's a chorus in Handel's oratorio, Saul, which is titled, Envy, Eldest Born of Hell. That's how envy is described. Firstborn of Hades, envy. Well, you and I have all known people who have drive, drive to succeed, drive to excel. People who are focused and who are dedicated to success. But in verse 4, Solomon makes a very unflattering insight into human motivation. Read it again with me. I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity 
and a striving after wind. So he's saying effort and ambition are ultimately driven by envy. Because human beings yearn to have more than someone else. They they yearn to outdo someone else. They want to break that record so that their name can be in the record books. They want their their business to thrive so that it can outdo the competitor. They want, human beings want to take center stage. They want to steal the spotlight from whoever's standing in it at the moment. And Solomon comments this, as with everything else under the sun is vanity. Now granted, I don't think what Solomon is saying that nobody does anything except out of a motivation of envy. So it's not the only human motivator, we can grant that, but it's an all too common one. And it's also the primary or a primary motivator for anyone who's not motivated through Christian love. Anyone who's doing anything outside of a desire to serve and glorify God very often is going to be motivated by greed, by envy. Envy of his neighbor. And for those who do love God, for those who do desire to serve and glorify him, envy is a motivator against which we must constantly be on guard because we are very susceptible to it, even in a state of grace. We're as susceptible to it as anyone else. Envy is an oppressor that comes from within. It's a different species of oppression, but it's an oppression. It's an oppressor. Now look with me at verse 5. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. See, here we have a carnful, sinful reaction against envy. Because what happens is sometimes the sloth sees envy, he despises it, and he doesn't want to have any part of it. So he takes the opposite extreme. There are echoes of Proverbs here. And in fact, there there are going to be places in Ecclesiastes starting now and going for the next several chapters that are going to start to have a lot of the characteristics that the book of Proverbs has. Uh, In some cases, some short little one-verse wisdom statements or collections of verses that deal with a topic in much the same way that the book of Proverbs does. So, verse 5 almost paraphrases passages in Proverbs. For instance, Proverbs 6, verses 10 and 11. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Or Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. And that's the fellow we have here in verse 5. He folds his hands, he's not going to work, and by his indolence, he, it says he consumes his own flesh. In other words, he, he, he ruins himself by his unwillingness to work. And the scenario described here in verse 5 <clears throat> and in those passages we just heard from Proverbs, those are another form of self-inflicted oppression. And then we move on to verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil 
and striving after wind. I don't know how you take those verses, but there are a couple of different perspectives on it. One is that verse 6 is the rationale given by the person in verse 5. So he's justifying his sloth by saying, well, it's better not to have much and, uh, and, just, and just have a quiet life. But I think a different take on it is probably more accurate. Uh, it's uh, finding that middle ground, avoiding envy, but not becoming slothful. It upholds the virtue of industry, in other words, uh, while dismissing envy. But envy is a real, um, it's a real hazard for us. It's a danger to our hearts. The New Testament speaks against it over and over again. And the cure for envy is contentment. Contentment. And contentment can only truly be found in Christ. If you look at Philippians 4, let's turn there together. Philippians chapter 4, that's one of the New Testament's great passages on contentment. Where Paul is describing how through Christ he has arrived at the discipline of contentment. Philippians chapter 4 beginning in verse 11. He's just expressed joy in the gift that had been sent to him. And he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That verse 13 has been abused uh, countless ways. But the way we properly understand it in context is Paul saying, through the strength of Christ, I can be content no matter what my circumstances are. Christ is the true remedy for every form of oppression, and we can only find true contentment in him. Contentment frees us from envy and its oppressive effects. But then finally, in verses 7 and 8, we encounter something that's similar, closely related to envy, but different also in its own way. We encounter greed. Now, if, if you'll turn back just a couple of pages to Proverbs 27. Proverbs is the book right before Ecclesiastes, of course, and we're very well, st- still pretty early in Ecclesiastes, and 27 of Proverbs is towards the end. Look at verse 20. Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Uh, verse 8 is reminiscent of that. If you look with our, at our text in verses 7 and 8, Solomon says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, 
yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches. See, there you have that phrase, never satisfied. He needs more and more and more, and the more he gets, the uh, never finds what he gets to be satisfactory. And I was interested that numerous commentators that I uh, read, when it comes to this verse, so many different ones from from differing um, backgrounds. They they invoke the the character of Ebenezer Scrooge because this is Ebenezer Scrooge in a nutshell, isn't it? What we have in verse 8 is the picture of a man who's in complete isolation and he's consumed by avarice. He has no one to share with, no one to whom he can leave his wealth, but at the same time, he's not enjoying any pleasure from his wealth. He's just amassing it and amassing it. And it's not doing him or anyone else any good. He's blinded to his own pitiable condition. He doesn't, on the one hand, indulge in hedonism and use his wealth for his own pleasure. But he, neither does he engage in philanthropy and, and take the great wealth that he's amassed and, and help others with it. That's Dickens' character in a nutshell. And it shows us what a dead end greed is. The vanity of the miser. And Solomon keys in on the irony of vanity. The irony and vanity of greed. Because this man, in verse 8, he has no reason to toil. He has no reason to work. And yet he toils just the same. He either can't give his wealth away because he has no one to give it to, or he won't because he just hoards it and worships it. And yet he derives no enjoyment from it. How tragic. You know, and in that way, greed is kind of a portrait of sin in general. Because in a certain way, all sin is like that. No one benefits from it. No one. That's why at the end of verse 8, he says, this also is vanity and an unhappy business. No one gains. Not the greedy person and not anyone else around him. And this too is an oppression of a person's own making, just as all sin is, really. But Christ came to free us from the power of sin. Pastor Mark reminded, of that, uh, reminded us of that very powerfully this morning. Christ didn't come just to remove the guilt of sin and take away our, our liability before God's justice, but he came to break the power of sin, to free us from the oppression that it brings. Oppression is a grievous thing. Every species of it is sorrowful. And I'll say again, there is no human solution. There is no human solution to tyranny and oppression. Now, does that mean uh, we shouldn't work for justice? No, that's not what it means. Should we seek to lift oppression in the world? Yes, we should. But we'll never eradicate oppression We'll never get rid of it entirely in this present age. Why? Because this world 
in this, throughout the, to the end of this age is going to be populated by fallen men and women, all of whom are by nature envious, greedy, and tyrannical. With each generation, a new generation of tyrants rises up. Every time a child is born to the world, born into the world, a little creature that's envious and greedy is born into the world. Christ is the true remedy for every form of oppression. So let me offer just a couple of points of application before we close. First, keep your work in Christ-honoring perspective. You got the refrain starting in verse uh, 4 to the end of our text tonight. That refrain of toil, that word keeps coming up. Toil, toil. Because fallen human beings are prone to bring themselves under oppression through some imbalance in their concept of work. Work can become a god to us. We can be energized to toil and to work hard, but we can be energized to do that in order to outdo others. That's where envy comes in. Or we can tip back the other way and slack off and say, there's no point, and be sluggards. For equally selfish reasons, the biblical solution is to work hard and to do our best for the glory of God. So keep your work in, honoring, in Christ-honoring perspective. And then secondly, what Ecclesiastes is doing here, maybe not explicitly, but what it's doing here and what the whole book is doing is directing our eyes and our heart upward. Because that phrase, under the sun, occurs over and over again, doesn't it? And under the sun, there will always be oppression. But in Christ, we are never left without a comforter. On the side of our oppressors, there is power, just as the text says. But Christ is the all-powerful. Christ's Holy Spirit is almighty. Our comforter, Think about that. You have an almighty comforter. Christ's gospel breaks the power of our worst oppressors. Christ's gospel breaks the power of sin and the devil. And there's no oppression worse than what they can bring. And Christ can free us from it all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for his gospel. And we thank you for the, the liberty that his gospel brings, freedom from all oppression. Thank you for comfort in the midst of the oppressions and the things that we suffer in this life. Thank you for, being, for, for reminding us, Lord, that we can glorify you even in the fires of oppression, even in the, the crucible of suffering. Thank you that we can look forward to an eternity with you, free from all oppression. Lord, we praise you. We praise you for Christ, our great liberator, and we pray that you'd help us to walk steadfastly with him, and we ask this in his name. Amen.